The following audio is from Grace City Church in San Diego, California. More information about Grace City Church is available at gracecitysd.com. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnants of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God has sent them. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your promise your promise that you will be with us today as we prepare our hearts and our minds to receive your word. I pray that um, you will use our brother Trevor to speak to us, Lord, and may we receive it and may so that we can apply it then as we go out there and reach out to people. Thank you again for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, eh? Good morning, my name is Trevor. I'm one of the leaders here at Grace City. So we just recently began a new series that Randall kicked off last week. This is our stewardship series and our giving series for 2018. We're walking through this series, we're paying attention to this concept, the economy of God. And I wanna pause for a moment I want to give some time to really walk through what exactly that means. The economy of God. How does this present itself in our life? This week we'll be drawing focus on the very last part of Haggai, four verses. And luckily we're going to be going through a more positive response in this book. And the title for this message is Cost, Willing, to sacrifice. And there's a lot to really process through in just such a tiny section of Haggai. I want to start off with this idea that there's a correlation to cost and sacrifice. But I want you to know that this isn't just a God thing. This is a concept that is naturally and intuitively produced somewhere probably anywhere in your life. It's just the way we think, it's the way we live out. What is worth sacrificing portrays that we're okay paying a cost. You are going to personally choose to at great, great lengths to give up things that you f- for something you find compelling. The question we really wanna parse out today is how willing are you to sacrifice in lieu of what was paid for you? There's a clear gospel thread here. But if we stay in this personal and hyper-individualistic spirituality, then we're going to miss the nowness of the kingdom. 
The economy of God is commerce based upon his kingdom. You are blessed to be a blessing. This, no, this notion isn't all about you. It's not even all for you. Think about Abraham. Think about how being a disciple of Christ will compel you to be about the things Jesus is about. We want to really hone in and talk about what that means for this economy of God conversation. A conversation about stewardship, a conversation on how all in are we in being all in for the gospel. How saturated is Christ's character and practices into who I am? I wanna move to a couple of quotes by a couple of Christian authors and pastors. I think they bring a lot of clarity to this huge question in in this message. And that is when it comes to healthy stewardship and a clear biblical way of just seeing stuff, how does this have a contrast uh, with the sin of our hearts, the desperate desires, the insatiable appetite for more stuff? Richard Foster puts it this way, possession is an obsession in our culture. This captures Uh, what we can be all about. We put a lot of energy and personal security in this notion of having better things and having more things. And we will take this to great lengths, right? And uh, it's, it's not a sin to have nice things, that's certainly true. But at what point is your having nice things more important than being an apprentice of Jesus? And let's be honest for a moment. When you get that nice bonus check, when the tax returns a lot nicer than you were anticipating, when you get a lot of overtime, where does that money go? So our relationship to money can be like, it can be like a strung out uh, drug addict, feverishly, eagerly waiting for that next paycheck to have that security um, and to have that escape. And the ironic part is that it's both both in purchased items. And this is a quote from Dallas Willard and it really helps capture the nature of our struggle. There is a tendency with all material possessions to obscure the needs they cannot satisfy. A full hand helps us forget an empty heart. And there's a, lot, there's a lot of truth here. And if you read Willard, he's, he's very hard to digest. So I'm gonna to try to translate him a little bit here. So on the one hand, we want our possessions and our success to give us security. And the truth is they can't. And the truth is also this, that we are more than okay making murky waters with our resources to make us feel just a little bit better. And the other part of what he's saying is this, and this is, this is really powerful. It's easier to walk through life with a lot of stuff and no hope than to walk through life with no stuff and no hope. So naturally we're gonna have this bent 
to chase what we feel is gonna, we feel is gonna make us feel just a little bit better about ourselves. And how does that usually manifest itself? By comparison, right? I know I don't have what I want, but hey, at least I'm not as bad as so-and-so. Here's another quote, it's from uh, Randy Alcorn. He's written a lot of material on this subject. And this quote is kind of more on the edgier end. And I want to walk through how this calls us into seeing our resources in a way where God is really on his throne. If we were to gain God's perspective, even for a moment, and to, were to look at the way we go through life, accumulating, hoarding, and this is huge, displaying our things, we would have the same feelings of horror and pity that any sane person has when he views in an asylum endlessly beating their heads against the wall. I want to start off here by saying what isn't being implied. Um, it's definitely possible you read this quote, you react to the tail end of it, um, but I, I, I think it's just for effect. So, But there's some good truth here about being caught in God's perspective and what a response, at the very least, internally ought to be in our hearts, right? That gut reaction. There really should be a tension and an uneasiness when you see the philosophy of living that is the absolute antithesis to the way God has called you to live. And when you read the account of creation in Genesis, you see a perspective of creative expression and sharing in a way that is totally counterintuitive. God, when he created everything, did not keep the world for himself. And it's easy not to think how this shapes stewardship for us. And it's because of this godly perspective that being present with people in community, rather that's coworkers, friends, family, that when you hear that conversation of spending excessively on really nice, frivolous things, you know that being a thousandaire, but thinking you're a millionaire, we've all been there. <laughs> you know, living outside of your means. And then wondering why are they so stretched? When accumulation of stuff is everything, if you really went line by line on that budget, Randy Alcorn is using imagery of shock and pity in that internal response and that gut reaction. There is a shock and uneasy tension for keeping your complete created order of things to yourself with no regard or concern for others. You're like a castle on an isolated island. And the scariest part is that you can become more than okay with it being that way. And then Randy Alcorn, he also talks about pity. But I think what's helpful here is that seeing that comes from a place of godly empathy. It's not looking down on people, it's not being judgmental, but nonetheless, there is having an affective response 
to the worldview of users, right? People that just use people to get further, to get what they want. And I think our response, you know, affectively, empathetically, should be one prompt by care, prayer, and hope for new life. So let's shift gears for a moment as we walk through the text in Haggai uh, chapter one. I wanna give you a filter as we go through this text and this message in which we'll be talking about resources, uh, namely the financial kinds, right? So this filter, this, uh, filter will be um, what we're gonna use as we talk about the economy of God. And I just ask this question, what is the currency of the economy of God? And I want you to come away from this message, if nothing else, that the currency of the economy of God is grace. And honestly, if, if you're like digging into the Greek, you can, also, you can also translate that generous, generosity by sacrifice at a cost. So let's uh, jump right into to Haggai, starting with verse number 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God in the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. So this verse is one of the, the bookends for the couple of verses we're gonna walk through. And if you remember last week, uh, Randall spoke um, about how the people had neglected to build the house of the Lord. Yet at the same time, they found it more compelling to spend time, energy, resources into building their own homes, building their own livelihoods, building their own security. And after the return from exile, there was a failed attempt to rebuild the temple. And you can read through, but if you want to get like more backdrop on this, like read Ezra, read it today for what happened, what those exchanges were. Basically, as, as far as the workers got was building the foundation for the temple. The people were so dismayed upon remembering the former glory of the temple that it was altogether unbearable to imagine how this new temple would be even resemblant of the former glory that now lay in ruin. And the people gave up on the temple and they went on to build houses, build their homes, build their livelihoods. So the book of Haggai is not really so much about starting this construction project. It's really more about picking up the pieces regathering, a more focused drive. And the people were faithful after hearing Haggai, a prophet of God. In verse 12, we see that they were faithful and two things stick out here, that they obeyed and they feared the Lord. Obedience speaks to the faith and the trust in the Lord and turning towards him, leaning into him. It's always interesting idea to put meat and bones on this, this idea that a healthy relationship of God is gonna have at least a fiber of fear. Fearing the Lord means really knowing who the Lord is. It's not that God is out to get me 
or that I'm in this constant state of panic because I'm just like, oh my gosh, the wrath is coming for me. But I know who God is and I know that God is not small. So let's go on to verse 13. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. And this is huge. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. So the points of emphasis for this message will come out of these two verses. That being presence, renewal, and sacrifice. So if you study the Old Testament, there's a huge backstory to each of these movements, right? We talk forever on just one of them. And they lay out a path from being, so we'll say presence, unto doing, so sacrifice or practice. And we're going to connect this to what it looks like, you know, being faithful and, and, and healthy in sacrifice and, and really, maybe for the first time, really diving into radical stewardship. So our first point is presence. Verse 13 says this, Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, I am with you, declares the Lord. And let's recall that we're talking about temples here. There comes a declaration from the Lord that he is with his people. And he says, I am. So that's huge. Uh, that he is present with them. That he is present to them. That he is in their midst. And we can walk right past this. For the people living in this time, this is absolutely mind-blowing that God is with his people. In the Old Testament, God's presence is a very big thing. And even the temple's beauty and glory revolves around the fact that God is present with his people. Rather, in the nomadic period of wandering, think the book of Exodus. Rather, we read about the tabernacle, or even the splendors of the temple that Solomon oversaw, or even think Moses and the burning bush. The fact here is that God is present. Even while the temple is in ruins and we see that all there is is a foundation on that building, that new temple, that God nonetheless is with his people. So as a staff, we recently went to New York City. And one of the days we spent quite some time in this beautiful, I would say 18th century church in the city. Have you ever been, you know, walked into one of those kind of buildings, an old church, maybe a cathedral, and just for unexplainable reasons, you felt like you were in a holy place? Maybe it was the history, maybe it was the architecture, Maybe the artifacts are just around you in that room. And these things are probably what the Jews sought out of this temple. The most important thing about the older temple is in their midst, right? The most important thing about that temple is God, not what that temple looked like. 
And just think about this for a moment and like really chew on it. God's people literally gave up on him. They literally started building and quit. And here's the crazy thing is at least a decade goes by to bring us where we are here right now in the text. Think about that kind of presence. Think about that kind of patience and think about how that presence transposes in your life. Let's talk about Jesus for a moment as we talk about presence that is more vital than anything else. This is a story in the gospel of Mark and it's pretty relevant to our series, I think. So it's Mark, I wanna say chapter 10, we'll start in verse 17. Give you a moment to flip there. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud on your mother and your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these things I've kept from my youth. And Jesus looking at him, and this is important, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his word, his words. But Jesus said to them, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished, probably scared as we see this response and said to him, then who can be saved? And this story, it always makes people tense, right? Blood pressure goes through the roof. Oh my gosh. <laughs> but I want to really draw something out that is so huge as we talk about cost, sacrifice, and that is, where is Jesus? And I want you to recall your introspective response, your emotional response, that gut reaction as I was reading this. And we really read and read this story and really wrestle with this question. If you are the rich young ruler, if you are the one searching out Jesus and asking, what must I do, Lord? And, and you and Jesus have the same exchange here. What do you do? What do you say? And there's a lot of pastors that kind of want to write this off, right? It's, it's not very convenient. Um, or that it's relevant, um, but I think it is. I think it absolutely is. And here's the thing. It's not the only time we see this conversation in the gospels. We see it all over the place, right? Come, follow me. For some, maybe the cost was treasure. For some, maybe the cost was their career, right? Think like your nets, come be fishers of men. 
So Jesus is not talking about arriving at a destination. He's not giving out eternal life like, you know, handouts, right? Here you go, here you go. Uh, So it's not a safe place. It's not an easy way. And he asks the same for you. Follow me, be my disciple, or a better translation of this is to be my apprentice. Become like me. Do what I do. Take my teachings upon you. Put them into practice. Abide in me. Walk with me. Learn from me. Trust in me. I will provide for you. And there's only two ways to respond here, right? Follow or don't follow. Sacrifice or don't sacrifice. The currency of the economy of God is sacrifice. The gospel is all about sacrifice and cost. Read John 3.16. And if Jesus was literally right in front of you and you're talking to him and he asks you that question, do you really follow? Because Jesus has so much more to offer you than a couple nice shiny toys, right? He doesn't need anything from you you honestly have nothing to offer that would be compelling for the contrary, right? But he has everything to offer. And let's look at the end of this story here in Mark chapter 10. Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. And this is really huge here. Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold. Now in this time, so like right now, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children's and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. So Jesus ends the teaching and the story of the rich young ruler recognizing that without God, there is no eternal life. And here's what I want us to pay mind to is Peter's comment. We have left everything to follow you. For the disciples, they were willing to sacrifice and pay the cost because they knew full well who Jesus was. In the kingdom of God, the rich will be humbled and the humbled will be made rich, right? Remember James, you were going through this summer. Knowing God is present with you changes everything. But we do need to come back to this question daily. Lord, am I really trusting you? Am I really willing to give up what I have to be with you, to experience you more deeply? Do I live like you are who you say you are? Now let's move on to the final two points. And they're both in uh, verse 14. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, 
the high priest and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. Our second point today is this renewal. There was renewal when the Lord stirred up the heart of Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the remnant of the people. So a lot of scholars think, um, like don't think the entire nation, you know, like uh, Nineveh, like think just a portion of the people. And we're not gonna stay on this point for too long, right? I'd spent too much time on the previous point, but I think there is <laughs> something really important here. The word stirred up uh, calls, uh, calls to mind two different things in the Hebrew. And this word stresses being energized. So think like a lot of energy and being encouraged. And it's the second movement after presence. And that's renewal. Once you know God is near to you and you're in his presence, like he doesn't just keep you there. He's telling you something. He nudges you, he stretches you, he encourages you. He directs you to his spirit. The stewardship thread here is, are you letting God show you his hopes for you? Are you letting your spirit become stirred and passionate about the new life he is breathing? All right, so if you read Paul, he talks about being a cheerful giver, being a joyful giver. My question is this, is co-creating and collaborating in the kingdom with God, is that something that excites you? Uh, I, I saw an interview, right, where someone said it's like co-signing God's blank checks, you know, your creative expression. In this scripture, we see, in scriptures, we see three outlets for sacrificing and giving and, and where our resources go to help the church. One's church, the second is gospel, and the third is the poor. So does it excite and invigorate you to sacrifice for others for the sake of the gospel, for church planting, for our city, for the outcast and broken. Let God stir up within you a heart that chases after him, a deeper motivation that you really see him as your provider. And our, our final point also comes out of verse 14. And that is sacrifice. Like that shouldn't be surprising, right? Like it's in the title. And uh, this, this point is the third movement. So God's presence breathes renewal, which calls us to respond in a practical way, i.e. sacrifice. So verse 14, it's, it's really straightforward here. The people began to work on the house of the Lord, the temple once more. The faithful remnant went to work and labor on the temple. My prayer is that you let God speak through stirrings to give your time, talent, and treasures for the kingdom, that you act upon those stirrings. And the subtext of the story is showing that God is very much a God of second chances. There's a take two at the construction of the temple and the remnant respond this time in their sacrifices, namely by labors. But it's really interesting here, if you really think about it, even in the period of the law, right, we always think tithe to 10%, but God is asking for more than a tithe here. 
So I want to ask the straightforward question. It's probably too um, invasive, but that's okay. Um, where is Jesus in your budget? I think it's a fair question. Jesus is important enough for you to actually make room for him in your budget. And uh, are you willing to make room if it's not there today? I heard someone, he put it this way. He's a pastor in Portland. He said, um, don't give what's in your heart, give what's on your heart. Because let's be honest, we're broken, we're greedy. If we ask, if we ask that question, you know, I'm gonna give what's in my heart. Um, honestly, like when you have family members that, are, that need help or, you know, they're out of luck or maybe they just haven't had a history for needing help all the time. Like, do you even help them? So let's say that that's hypothetically true and you don't even help your family are you really likely to set apart and sacrifice for the kingdom? So therefore I say, don't give what's in your heart, give what's on your heart and pray and fast and study and meditate on this. Seek God's vision. And this is riffing off the same pastor. Uh, let him create, you know, that you're shaping a stuffology, so to speak, for your life a theology for the way that you see stuff and really let God have the space and raw materials to create in your life his character and practices really becoming his apprentice, his understudy, his resident. I want to follow up with this question. It's, it's invasive too, of course. Uh, why don't you sacrifice? And there can be a lot of uh, answers to this question. You know, maybe it's ignorance. I don't say that to be condescending. That sounds very condescending, I know, um, or anything of that nature. But maybe you're, you're very new to this whole Jesus thing and, and sacrifice and giving. Biblical stewardship isn't a subject that has ever been talked about at great length. Or maybe you're transitioning into a new season, maybe you're postgraduate, maybe you're going into a new career, maybe this is a new city. And maybe for the first time in career, you're starting to think, well, what does a theology of a budget on stewardship really look like? Especially if it's something you never fleshed out before. Or maybe you're kind of still trying to figure out what God is calling you into when it comes to sacrifice and giving. And I think, you know, the, the, the other thing is this, maybe you have a lot of debt, like who doesn't, right? Um, student loans, car loans, mortgages, credit cards, stress is just exploding right now. Um, loans to pay off loans. And maybe the excuse has been, you know, like, well, my debt's gone. Like, that's when I can give. Or maybe, you know, it's just this, this adage, when the grass is greener. When my debts are gone, when my kids are in school, when my kids are through school, when my kids finish school, when my kids pay off college, uh, when my kids find a dependable career, when I retire, the problem is that the one-day mentality never becomes reality. Saying maybe is worse than saying no. 
right? That's when I can sacrifice and give. And let's be honest, God is speaking to that very heart problem in Haggai, right? When, when Randall was preaching, it is not yet the right time to build the house of the Lord. And the Lord rebukes that. And the honest problem boils down to this question. This one's pretty heavy, of course. Do you believe God is your provider? Not do you know God is your provider? Like I can, I can quote scripture on that. But do you believe, is it true to you that God is your provider? And you know, to be honest, there's a lot of this narrative, like we have to reclaim um, especially if you're the man and husband of the house and you know we always use that verbiage I'm the provider of my home and for my family and that's the way you're always coming back to it then you're not living you're living an unbiblical concept oh that's really edgy I don't like that so let me flesh that out a little bit do you work long and hard hours for the needs of your family of course you do, absolutely. But here's the thing, God provided the means to be able to take care of your family. So seeing that God is the provider for your family. And of course you have a huge role and a huge purpose there. So I wanna leave you with just a, a couple of quick takeaways here. Just a couple questions, right? So here's the first one. How compelling is Jesus. So if you talk about sacrifice and giving, this has to be the question we're coming back to, right? In the gospel, the name of Jesus is so compelling and powerful, right? Uh, let's just go back to James for a moment. Uh, demons shudder and tremble at his very name. And sometimes we don't talk about this either. The religious and political leaders, like think book of Acts for a moment, they were actually afraid of him. Like it says that. They feared him. They didn't want to like point that out in public because they were scared. And just think of it, it's this itinerant, like homeless rabbi, but like these really well-to-do people are like panicky. Like who else can say that? But the way we live, budget, the way we work, the way we're in relationship with others, doesn't always speak to a way of life that finds Jesus compelling at all. Is the gospel compelling? Is it good news for the soul? Of course it is. So I wanna connect this um, with a teaching from Jesus uh, in the gospel of Matthew. And of course, Christina quoted this too. So that just always happens, I feel like. Um, so do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And we heard this teaching, you know, like Sunday school or no Sunday school, like, like you've heard this a lot probably. And I want to challenge you to not just see this as an abstract general principle. Like it's just a good value to think about, right? Like I think it's so much more than that. I wanna give you a, a more concrete way of looking at this. 
seeing your resources. Seeing, yeah, Jesus says that where your treasure is, there your heart will be. I want you to see that money always follows your heart. Oh, that's, that's nice to hear, right? You only have one of two roads. Either with how you use money, you're either gonna generate a heart full of greed or a heart full of generosity. An earthly heart set on my kingdom or a heavenly heart set on God's kingdom. And the heart here that Jesus is talking about, like it's all contingent on where God is present. And do you include God in these conversations? Like when you're talking about resources and money, like people will say that's a top one stressor. Um, but do you really earnestly pray and, and ask God, like, what do I do? Like, what's a healthier way to see this? So here's, um, here's a really good quote uh, from a pastor and author. Here's what he, he said in the sermon. God is not after your money. God is not poor, but is he after your heart? Absolutely. And your money will follow your heart. We just talked about how you spend money cannot be divorced from your walk with Christ. It's all connected. And there's a lot of truth here. If you study the New Testament and you read Paul and, you know, he talks about the really good stuff, right? Salvation, the faithfulness of Christ. Um, but when he's also talking about the practices, when he's talking about sacrifice, and he, he talks a lot about that. He, you go to 2 Corinthians, he has like two chapters that are just devoted to talking about giving. Um, Paul sees sacrifice in connection with discipleship. You're becoming more like Jesus. Giving, sacrificing is a spiritual practice. It's a spiritual discipline, right? Um, the ends, like when we talk the means and the ends of the practices, the spiritual disciplines are not just to mindlessly do stuff, right? I just do it for the sake of doing it. Oh, I, f I feel a little bit better after I do that. Like, I think I wanna do that some more, right? It's, it's not legalism. It's not moralism. The ends of the practices are to be with Jesus, to be present, to always be coming back to him. And there's this uh, old adage, I, I think it's in scripture. I, di I didn't research to see if it was, but I know that it was also a saying um, in the ancient world uh, among rabbis. And it's this, that the student is never greater than his or her rabbi, but the student should become like their rabbi. I think that's very compelling. So we come back to the question Jesus gave the rich young ruler. Will you come follow me? Will you sacrifice to follow me? Am I that compelling to you? All right, and here, here's our final point. We're just gonna close out here real soon. And this comes out of the book of Haggai. So is there a foundation 
for Jesus to work with. I want this final takeaway to be practical and to be something to really wrestle and chew and struggle on this week and maybe leading to the new year. And that is this question, is there a foundation for Jesus to work with when it comes to this idea of sacrifice? And like I said, this comes from the book of Haggai. As we talked about earlier, um, there was a point in time where the construction of this new temple halted. It completely stopped. The people quit. And as far as they got was this foundation. And it's really interesting to note one of the people mentioned in these verses, Joshua, Joshua the high priest. So if you ever dig into Hebrew, you'll come across this really interesting fact. The Greek rendering we get for Jesus is rendered as Joshua in the Hebrew or Yeshua. And I think there's a really beautiful connection here in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Will you give the high priest, think book of Hebrews, Jesus the space and resources to build something only he can? If God can create reality, just literally just, uh, just words, then what can he do in your life? Let's talk more on specifics for a second. And I want to leave with just one question here. But of course, that question doesn't end here, right? Doesn't end just here in a church service, but it's something to really deeply consider. Or in the words of Haggai, right? When he says, consider your ways. Does the way that I give or sacrifice, does it require faith? Let me ask that one more time. Does the way that I sacrifice or, or give, does it require faith? And we all know living in San Diego is an enormous expense. It's not easy, right? It's, if there's one thing you dread, it's the rent. Ugh. It's not easy to make ends meet sometimes. But I think it's also easy to miss the other part of this conversation. So if you really, you know, just are bored and you're like, I think I'll research demographics today. So if you do that for University City, you'll come across the fact that the average um, household income is, uh, it's, it's above six figures. It's like 106, 108, depending where you look. And the interesting thing here is that's almost $40,000 more than the average San Diegan. And I think that's very telling. So what does that mean here? It means that although we definitely need that foundation to start, you know, that one to 5%, that we're just, you know, you read Paul, let's say 2 Corinthians, that setting apart for the Lord what you have decided in your heart. That for some, and really for talking about an average for, for many, even getting that like, oh, I hope I get to the tithe one day. Like, that's a huge goal. Like, does that really require, sac does that really require faith? 
really let God inform you and, and stir you into what God is burdening you for sacrifice, for setting apart for the kingdom, right? We, we look his, historically at, at, at the first generation of the church, right? They gave out of a gospel heart. They didn't give out of a legalism heart. So I close this question, the one we just asked, what would it look like for your sacrifice to require faith? And I mean more than just financial resources. I mean time, I mean practices, I mean presence. I want you to write down this question and I want you to pray for it. And, and not just like, you know, you, you might talk with someone like, oh, I'll pray for you. And you don't ever pray for them. But I mean, really intentionally, like this is the first thing I do when I wake up. I'm on my commute and it takes forever. Well, this is the perfect time for that, right? All right, let us pray. Lord, we thank you that, um, that you are so good that your grace covers us, Lord, that, that you paid a price that we weren't worthy of. Lord, I, I just pray that we really let on this message and um, Haggai really stir us, really ask us to yearn and, and ask bigger, greater questions, Lord, and that um, we really trust you. We really take your yoke upon us. We really find you compelling. We really wanna walk in step with you. Thank you, Lord. And we pray this boldly in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from Grace City Church. If you found this helpful, feel free to share it and enjoy more resources at gracecitysd.com. Grace City Church exists to equip people with the gospel for everyday life.